Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. And today we have a double feature, two guests. A lot of times we talk about the pioneers in the field, and today is about the current leadership. I am pleased to be joined by both the president of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, Dr. Tim Dwyer, and the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, Dr. Steve Harris. Both very engaging, very humble gentlemen. You'll learn a little bit about their background. Really what you will hear today in these interviews is each leader's vision for the future. Tim with AAMFT and Steve with JMFT. First, let me welcome Steve Harris. Published by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, that's JMFT, is dedicated to both reflect and foster the best scholarship in our field that makes a difference, moves us forward as a profession, crosses borders, and of course is sensitive to cultural diversity and social justice. It's a publication relevant to both researchers and clinicians, and that's important to Steve, as you'll hear him talk about today. He received his master's and doctoral degree in MFT from Syracuse. Prior to ending up at the University of Minnesota, he was a faculty member at Texas Tech for 13 years. He's been practicing MFT for over 20. Before he became the editor of JMFT in 2018, he was serving as review as editor from 2000 to 2005, and he's been on the editorial board since 2000. Dr. Harris is the author of over 65 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and he has contributed to a variety of other publications throughout his career. You may also know him as the Associate Director of the Minnesota's Couples on the Brink Project with former guest on the podcast, Dr. Bill Doherty. Wonderful to be joined by Steve Harris, editor of the Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy, also known as JAMFT, here on the podcast. First question we always ask Steve is, um, Tell us about yourself, your journey, not only into MFT as a profession, but also into the academic side, which led you to become uh, the editor of the journal in 2018. Wow. Um, how much time do I have? Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I uh, was not a very good high school student, and uh, I started in, I think I, I didn't, I'm a first-generation college student, so I didn't really have... Uh, uh, mentoring around how to go to college or how to uh, how to sign up for this or that, and so I was all self-taught, and I wasn't I didn't have a great teacher. Um, 
so I would say that um, I took poor study skills, study habits into my college environment, and, and I didn't do well there. I was fortunate enough to take a break from college for a couple of years. I, I served a, a mission for my uh, my church and, and uh, lived in Finland for two years and really learned how to learn a new language that nobody learns. Nobody learns how to speak Finnish, um, and uh, and realized I could I could study, and so I went back to college, and I kind of turned my, my academic trajectory around. But even in that academic tra trajectory, I, I remember my senior level writing class, my paper was held up as the worst paper in class, like the teacher read it to everybody. It was indeed the worst paper in class, and she didn't read my name or anything like that, and so... Uh, I, I really started my educational. Um, you remember what the topic of that paper was? Yeah, I'm sure it, was, you do. it was an interview with someone who was an MFT. <laughs> and I, I, that was the, the task to, was to interview someone who is doing the job that you want to be doing. So I interviewed somebody on campus who was an MFT, and and it was a it was a bad paper. But um, so I started my educational career with a deficit mindset that I'm not a good student, that I don't I don't really have much to contribute, and I'm not a good writer. Um, and so today, to, to contrast where I w was at at one point to where I am now after having written and published articles and books and, and now editing the journal is, is, quite, a, is quite a thing. Uh, like many people in our field, I started out thinking I wanted to be in psychology or advertising. You know, I didn't know what I wanted as a kid with a brain that was still developing. And, um, and, and through my, uh, through luck, through ha happenstance, I, f I found my way into a family science class and realized that there was this thing called marriage and family therapy. And I'm like, this is what I thought I was going to be getting in psych and didn't really like the orientation of the, the more individually oriented uh, perspective in psychology. And so uh, went through to the MFT route and had, got a degree in, in family science as an undergraduate and then went on to uh, get my master's degree and PhD in, uh, at Syracuse University. My plan was to go and, and to get a master's degree, return home from, from the East and, and set up a practice. But when I was at Syracuse, I, I, was, um, I had an assistantship in the, um, in the counseling center and I was doing my practicum in the community. And so there were some weeks I was doing 20, 30 hours of clinical work. and Full-time clinical, full work. clinical work. Uh, and it was too much. And I, I remember coming home and just being kind of mush-brained. And, like, my wife would be like, hey, you're home. We can talk. I'm like, I'm done talking. You know, I just want to escape for a little bit. So I knew, I knew that um, while I enjoyed my clinical work and thought I had a, a talent at it, I knew I didn't want to do that exclusively. And so um, I, I, the decision was made to go focus on a, a Ph.D. And, and to get my research skills up and my writing skills up and, and um, that's kind of how I got into this track. And now I, I love what I do and I, I love the I love the lifestyle that I have with, you know, I can meet with a student, I can write an article, I can, you know, do supervision, I go to a meeting, and I, you know, do a variety. One of the things about you, I think, that sticks out, one of your, your common factors is you, you are very humble and you're, you're telling this story of starting kind of failure-driven, which a lot of our, our field is, that we come in and we experience many students listening to this podcast or young professionals know what it's like to fail clinically or to not do your best and kind of struggle with, is this the right thing for me? And you talk about the story of feeling that way on the academic side and then kind of rising above it. What was it that, uh, obviously the, the Finland experience was important, what was it that got you over the hump that turned you into someone that is now a, a, a scholar and, a, and, and uh, an expert on other people's scholarships, so to speak? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I if I got past the hump. I think I still see myself with kind of that negative mindset. Although when I look at my beat, I'm like, well, obviously there's something going on here. There's you know there's been publications and books that have been uh, 
created and sold. People buy the book. People read the books. And um, I think it's been uh, helpful to get in with good mentors, uh, colleagues who have kind of helped me. I think it was also realizing that um, even if my ideas aren't the best, I have some novel ideas. And, and there's always room for novelty and innovation in our field. And so through some of those novel ideas, you know, submitting something, for a document for publication, and realizing that it, it got published, and I was kind of surprised by that. And I thought, well, maybe I can do this. You know? And so just having those little tiny successes, it's one of the reasons that when I, when I work with my uh, doctoral students, when I, I kind of think I want them to start off with a success. So I always have them start by doing a book review and getting a book review published. I want them to see their name in print. I want them to think that this, this process is approachable, that it's something that's attainable. Um, instead of thinking, I've got to do a, an RTC and uh, a randomized RCT, and I've got to get uh, I've got you know to do this. I get a huge grant. I just want it to make. I want it to make. Uh, I want a, it to be a, a small success leading small to a larger success. Yeah, All right. So tell us, as many people listening to the podcast, uh, obviously, um, will not go on to create original research of their own, or maybe ever submit to a journal of the caliber of JMFT. So why? And we'll talk about your vision for the journal over the next three or four years. But why is it important? Uh, if you are a frontline clinician in MFT, why is it important to read any academic journal, especially the Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy? So I think uh, I think one of the things that we try to do uh, at JMFT is we try really hard to make research accessible to the audience, and we have, we have to remember there are several different audiences. So there, there are the, uh, the researchers at uh, you know, Carnegie One institutions that are trying to get federal funding and trying to expand their, uh, the, the, the uh, push the edge of knowledge of what we know. Um, and so that's one audience. So we have to make sure that, that our articles have a, uh, a scientific rigor and uh, conform to acceptable practices within science. Um, so that's one audience. And then we have a, a huge clinician base that get uh, that get the journal, uh, and they are people who have gone through their master's programs, some PhD programs. They they have some knowledge of research uh, methods, but maybe they are not practicing it, and they don't swim in those waters every day. And so the articles have to also be approachable by by that group of people that may have maybe less sophistication um, with uh, research methods and tight controls and all the things that those mean. So those are two audiences. And, and another group of people that, that read our articles are the policy people in, in Washington, D.C., who who look to JMFT and other, other forms of scholarship to help inform uh, what gets funded, what gets prioritized at a, at a federal level. And so that's quite a task to, to ask each uh, author to kind of match your message for these three uh, these Three, uh, three different very different stakeholders. Yeah, different stakeholders and different audiences. Yeah. And um, when you think of uh, what you're excited about currently in the journal and your, your vision uh, for the next couple of years, what do you want that to look like? So I, I think the thing that guides me is uh, thinking about um, publishing relationship-oriented clinical research. Uh, those four words, relationship-oriented clinical research, has kind of become my mantra. Um, and in talking with people about that, uh, someone came up to me and said, is that, is that the only thing that you'll be doing? Or is there room in JMFT for other things? Of course there's room in JMFT for other things. But I really feel like the, our discipline of marriage and family therapy takes a relational look at uh, mental health problems and emotional distress 
uh, and that is that is our strength. And so I want to claim it. I want to I want to grab it and stake stake our, our ground there. Um, <clears throat> so so to that end, you know, we have uh, we have research articles that, that get sent back to the authors and say, you know, what are the clinical implications of of your work here? And if if they can't connect it to how the clinician might sit in their room and say, okay, I just read this article and we were just talking about this problem and, and you know, have you thought about doing X, Y, and Z with, with your, your, your son or your, your spouse? Um, those, are, those are the things I'd like to see. I'd like, I'd like it to be translatable and I'd like people to be able to... Well, you're preaching to the choir. We're both MFT educators and this idea of having the research come to life. Whenever I read something, I want it distilled down uh, to the kind of least common denominator and how that will help me in the therapy room uh, with my clients, whether it be individuals, couples, or family from this relational systemic, systemic view. Uh, so that, I think, is very important. Do you think that, um, oh, let me ask this way. How do you instill the value? Because my, my belief is if you're not reading uh, journal articles when you're in school, as many of our listeners are, it's going to be very hard to pick up those habits outside of there. So how do you help people while they're still young in their formative stage appreciate the uh, what an academic journal like JMFT has to offer? Yeah, I think I think some of that is meeting um, meeting the various audiences where they're at. So that means probably increasing our social media presence. Um, it, we, we have, you know, we at JMFT are Amy Hubbard and myself at the University of Minnesota, plus a board of educators, a board of editorial members that are all over the country and internationally. And we are in Alexandria, Virginia at AMFT headquarters. And we are at, in Boston at Wiley headquarters. And so um, learning how to negotiate who has the say in what is the face of JMFT and what is the branding of JMFT. So we have different ways that we have to work and um, how do we coordinate the, the efforts of the folks at Wiley with what AMFT wants, with the academic side of what we're doing and the, the rigor and the scientific um, uh, standards that we want to meet is, is, is a challenge as well. But I think, I think that we need to be thinking about how, to, how do we get greater content out to people so that they can make a choice to click on the link or to, to, to move to it. And I think most of that's going to happen through social media, through email blasts, things like that. Because I, I don't think people, if you, get, if you get the journal and it shows up in your mailbox, I don't know anybody who reads it cover to cover. Um, mostly, I imagine if people get it, a hard copy, they're reading the table of contents uh, to see if they know any of the authors or if there's any topics that, that fit for them. But I think finding ways to, to get journal content out to people. Uh, virtual issues is, is one of the things. Yeah, that, let's talk about that. I have been lucky enough to take part in that, uh, one of those virtual issues uh, a couple of years ago. And I think as also as an educator, uh, if you're a student listening to this uh, or a young professional and you want to, or not even uh, someone that just wants to learn a new content area. Talk about some of the topics of the virtual issues and how that can be good to get everything just in one place. Yeah, so the virtual issues are um, like uh, similarly topiced, uh, similar topics kind of bundled together. Uh, they reside on the, the Wiley uh, JMFT website. So if you're, if you're listening, you could Google Wiley and then JMFT. You'll, you'll come up to the JMFT homepage, um, and, and you can click on uh, the link that will take you to the virtual issues off of the, off the main page. I'm, just, I'm doing that right now. We're doing it in real time. While he's doing that, I can also tell you if you're a, a member, uh, whether you're a student member, a preclinical fellow, a clinical fellow, 
uh, part of your membership comes with access uh, to JMFT. So you can also get to where Steve is talking about straight through the AMFT homepage. You put in your password and you can go straight to the journal and see these virtual issues. Yeah. So if you go to the browse link, you'll, you'll see a, a drop down menu that, that has uh, virtual issues on it. Um, right now, there are about 15 uh, entries. Uh, the topics are on things like international family therapy, infidelity, feminist informed training and supervision, uh, sex therapy, MFT trauma in the military, sex, sexual and gender diversity, common factors research, supervision, solution focused brief therapy. Um, we need to expand this, and we need to. There's a variety of topics that I look at and I, and I think are missing from this. Uh, suicide, depression, anxiety, play therapy. Um, so I've been talking to people who are have expressed an interest in coming on board uh, as virtual issues editors, um, and I'd, I'd really like to beef this up over the course of my tenure on on the on the as as the editor in chief. Um, so a lot more topics. I see the audience primarily as being um, educators and clinicians, so educators and students. So that an educator might say, well, I'm teaching a class on infidelity this week. What do we know? And they can go, boom, right here to, to this, uh, you know, this issue on dedicated to One great way that I've used them in, in other MFT educators that I know is if they're teaching a class around special populations or special topics, this is built right into it. It's your whole reading list right there. So it really is a cool... Uh, addition to really see the best of what the journal has to offer is spanning you know over the long history of the journal both current articles and historical articles that kind of uh, set the set the field in motion for some of these content areas so if you haven't checked it out it's a great thing to look at um, what else as far as coming up are you excited about uh, with the journal well the, the, actually the, this virtual issue is probably the thing I'm, I'm most excited about um, we also the, the other thing that's that's in the future um, is another effectiveness issue, and um, students and other people listening to the podcast will probably remember that in the in the 90s we started doing kind of a, an every 10 year update on the effectiveness and efficacy of, of the treatment that we yeah Pinsoff and Win was the first one in 1995, and then the late great Doug Sprinkle had uh, two more versions. So it is a, it's about time for another one. Yeah, so we have that in the works. Uh, we've got uh, Andrea Wittenborn and uh, Kendall Holtrup from Michigan State University as uh, uh, they're going to come on as guest editors, um, and they'll put together the effectiveness issue that will probably debut January 2020, 21, something like that. We have, I've got the date somewhere, but we figure we've, we're out uh, about two years away from getting that out into the mix and, and, and having that published. But um, So that's another thing I'm looking forward to, and uh, we're, we're ahead of the curve on, on, on getting things lined up. Also, I think that's another way people outside, we're talking about if you're listening to this, you're either a member of AAMFT or you're interested in MFT. But that's another way these effective issues of people in related discipline outside learn about AMFT. That is, uh, again, as Steve was saying, a way to kind of amalgamate all the best data and, and what we know about the effectiveness of uh, couple and family therapy interventions and models. So it is, if you've never checked one of those out, it's a great place. Many students, when they're, I know, doing a lit review or whatever, have probably come across those editions of those articles. So that, that will be published as part of the journal instead of a, a standalone. Right. Um, That's the plan right now. I, I haven't heard anything different yeah. from AMFT. All right, let's talk about um, if you're listening to this and you talked about being, uh, I think sometimes people don't know about maybe doctoral students, about 
either writing a book review or being an apprentice reviewer. So before we talk about tips of submitting on your own, if that's what you want to do, let's talk about how you could get involved uh, in the journal. Eli here to tell you about the AAMFT's annual conference. It's right around the corner, and we want to make sure our listeners of the podcast get the best deal. Register by Sunday, June 30th to receive $100 off your registration. This conference is the largest gathering of systemically-minded therapists in the world, and it's going to invigorate you with new ideas, clinical applications, and connections with new and old friends. As I said, I'll be there recording you can go to the AAMFT website to see all of the conference highlights for AAMFT 19. These are just a few of them. There's going to be 80-plus innovative presentations that all have a systemic focus, showcasing the latest research, advancing the field. There's going to be many networking and social events help you to make new connections and catch up with those old friends. And there's a bonus track for career development to deepen your skills. All in all, up to 27 continuing education credits over the weekend. Again, you can go to aamft.org to check out the conference program and to register. So um, Dr. Lindsay uh, Weiler at the University of Minnesota is our reviews editor. Um, she's always looking for books to review, and, and like I said, part of my philosophy is to get people, get students primarily involved in, in publishing and get their name on something so they can have a positive experience with that. Uh, so we're, we're open to students uh, coordinating with Dr. Weiler about um, books that they might want to have reviewed. They might even contact her and say, do you have any books that you'd like to have reviewed? Here's my in their areas of interest. She gets books all the time. Um, so that's one way for students to get involved. Uh, another way is to talk to your professors, uh, and and if you've got an idea that that uh, needs to be get its way in print, you know, talk to your professors about how do I do this, how do I go about doing this, and and get involved. They're always welcome to call me. I have uh, I have authors oftentimes will email me and say I'm thinking about an, an article on such and such a topic. Is that appropriate? And then I go with them, uh, go through with them the the nature of their approach and how they're thinking about it. And whether it's a relationally oriented kind of a topic uh, and how, how they're going to tie that piece in. And, and sometimes I point people in different directions. So JMFT is not, of course, the only outlet out there. Um, and some, some ideas uh, need to be in different, in different outlets. So. Yeah, it could be a really good article, just not a fit for this uh, relational frame that we've been talking about. I think, uh, so happy you shared your, your personal story of kind of not being a, a innate natural student or writer because I think what stops many young professionals from submitting to a journal like JMFT is the fear of rejection but this uh, to me I always kind of describe it like baseball if, uh, if, I, if I'm if I get three out of ten I'm an all-star I'm in 300 so it, it's kind of like it goes with the territory of su submitting but talk about kind of getting over um, as a young author the, the fear of rejection and then learning uh, from a peer review process and then we can Kind of talk about some tips if, if we have people thinking about submitting to the journal. Yeah. Years ago, uh, Doug Sprinkle, who's, who has passed, um, he and Fred Piercy did a, um, they wrote an article in JMFT called Difficult, how, how 
MFT authors have handled difficult rejections. Yeah, that's a great one if you haven't, they, haven't read that. They interviewed people who, you know, prolific authors who have been rejected. And, and I remember them talking at a conference about it like, oh, some, some of those rejection letters, when they used to be letters that would come in the mail, they wouldn't even open, you know, and they, they were so worried about it. Or they'd read the first line that says, we're, we're sorry to say that we're not, and they just wouldn't read anything more. And then they would go back a month later and they're like, well, it wasn't that bad. And the the uh, critique that, that that was the article had been given was actually very formative and helped them uh, create a better article. And so, um, <clears throat> but it is difficult putting your. I think writing is very personal. So when when your <clears throat> senior level uh, English teacher pulls your paper out of a stack and says, "This is the worst paper of everything," it, uh, man, that hurts and that sticks with you for a while. But the only way you get to be a better writer is through doing writing. And the only way that you get uh, a different perspective on your writing is to get that feedback. Um, so I've had, as an educator, I've had students who will say, I just can't, I can't keep sending you my stuff and it comes back with all this red ink on it. Well, so, so that's, that's uh, information that I need to hear. Like if, if students are getting so, these adverse reactions to hearing feedback, then the feedback's not getting through. So how do I, as, a, um, as someone who critiques their writing, how do I give them feedback that can help them strengthen their document and help them hang in there with the process? Kind of like therapy, right? You go and you, you present your life before someone else and they say, I've got some, I've got some hard feedback for you to hear. And, and there are ways to give clients feedback that they're more willing to accept and listen to than, uh, than other ways. And so how do we find that um, when, when you're putting something very personal out there for, for someone's good? Yeah, it's a beautiful parallel process between therapy and, and writing for a journal. The, the other thing that I think about, and we were also talking about at the JMFT meeting, is the idea of even great papers get a revise and resubmit. Yeah. Very rarely uh, does something get accepted the first time. And if you're someone that has had success at every other level, now you start uh, a career in academic publishing or trying to write for a journal, uh, it's developmentally normal to get a revise and resubmit. In fact, uh, it's expected. And I think to, to get comfortable with that, my, my metaphor of uh, if you're batting three out of ten, you're doing pretty good. So, especially at a journal like a JMFT. Well, and to, to continue that, you know, therapy compared to writing metaphor, I mean, we all have blind spots. And so you sit in front of your therapist and your therapist says, did you realize you do this? No, I didn't. But this is the same with our writing. Did you realize you left this part out of your document? We kind of need to know about the sample. <laughs> of course you do, you know, or we need to know about the questions you asked. Of course you do. I just... I've been I've been with my data so much. I've been with this project so much. I just thought I just thought that was evident. I can't see the forest from the trees, right? I mean, I'm in the bubble of my writing project, and sometimes that outside perspective is important. Uh, Steve, you are uh, very busy, but also I feel very accessible and and humble. If somebody wanted to get an idea about would this be a good fit for the journal or not, before they actually format, submit, go through all of that. How would they get uh, contact of you, and are, are you open to that? Yeah, I'm totally open to that. I can be reached through my email. Email is the best uh, way to reach me, smharris at umn.edu. You can look me up on the University of Minnesota Family Social Science website as well. Um, but yes, send me an email. Um, uh, it's harder to call me at work. I don't, I, I'm not always available to pick up my phone because I might be meeting with students or others in, in my office. So uh, send me an email, uh, float the idea by me, you know, let's have a, let's arrange for a, a telephone conversation about it. Uh, I'm happy to do all those things. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and thank you so much for joining us today. And maybe we'll have you back um, 
we've talked to uh, one of your, your colleagues and mentors before, Bill Doherty, and maybe we'll have you and Bill back together talking about uh, something else you're passionate about, your Couples on the Brink project, your yeah, discernment counseling, but you are, you're a man of uh, many talents. So thank you so much. And uh, uh, again, if, if you've listened to this and you've enjoyed what you've heard or a little more curious, very easy uh, to get to JMFT either through Wiley or again, if you're a member, you want to go to the main page and you can uh, find the direct link to JMFT to see all those virtual issues, the current issues, everything uh, Steve mentioned today. Thank you so much, Steve. All right. Thanks, Eli. Take care. Thank you, Steve. I learned a lot. Now let me tell you about my next guest and friend, AAMFT president, Dr. Timothy Dwyer. Tim has a master's degree from Michigan State before going on to get his doctoral degree at Purdue University, which at the time was the bedrock in MFT doctoral education, producing more MFT program directors, faculty members, and AMFT board members than any other graduate program around under the expert tutelage of such great MFT educators as Doug Sprinkle and Fred Piercy. Tim has been a faculty member at Loyola University in New Orleans. Also in New Orleans, he was the president of the Louisiana Division of AAMFT, helping them in their fight for licensure. He is a past Divisional Contribution Award winner from the AAMFT. He's had two terms of service as a general board member before being elected to the president-elect position of AAMFT in 2018. Tim has served as the program director of the MSMFT program at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. And now he resides in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tim Dwyer. It's so good to have you here uh, on the AAMFT podcast. I guess the first question we ask every guest is, how did you get into the profession? Um, what turned you on to MFT? Well, I can tell you the long story or the short story. I'll try to start with the short story and see where it goes. But thank you, Eli. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you know, I had never even heard of MFT until I was in my graduate program uh, in family studies. Uh, and it was a research, you know, focused program. But most of the faculty were, were clinical members of MFT. I remember them coming in with a, a conference bag that said AAMFT, and I'm like, well, what is that? Um, but really, it was there that I learned that there was this, you know, field, this pathway in mental health um, that was different than the ones that I had, uh, you know, knocked on the doors of when I was shopping around for uh, you know, for graduate school, looking at, I, I mean, I knocked in the door of social work, I knocked in the door of counseling, I knocked in the door of applied sociology. Tim, you're very youthful. Give us an idea of the timeline. What year are we talking about here? I started my master's program in uh, 1987. Um, and uh, you know, I, again, I had never even heard of, uh, I graduated from undergrad in 82, sociology, psychology, so I was always interested in psychological things, but the sociology piece kind of gave me this interest in groups and sort of what happens when people come together. 
Um, so, uh, but anyway, I, I, my, my graduate school faculty at Michigan State University were eminently influential to me. I think one of the first books that I was reading in my graduate program we were, uh, you know, were centered in the handbook. One course I read, we marched through the German and Iskern handbook uh, of marriage and family therapy, uh, reading uh, Pragmatics of Human Communication. And I think what attracted me about that was one, that there was sort of a language for how they saw the world in this kind of systemic and cybernetic view. And, uh, and so it felt, it, it sort of, there was an intellectual attraction to it, but it also fit a way that I saw the world. And that is that you can't just sort of look inside people and, you know, theorize or make inferences about what their problems are. And it really, that context is, you know, sort of everything. Uh, there's this whole way of thinking that fits how I experience the world. Tim, you attended Purdue University when it was really in the golden age of doctoral training as far as state-of-the-art preparing future MFTs. What was that experience like for you? Um, well, Purdue wasn't my first choice. Um, I'll, uh, I'll not say the name of the, of the program that rejected me, but it, uh, it would end up being a fortuitous thing. Um, and, uh, I, you know, could not imagine having found a better program than, than Purdue for me at the time. Um, and, and I think, uh, you and I both, uh, Eli, uh, I think inherited, uh, just some terrific mentors, a terrific legacy of, uh, you know, of leaders, thought leaders, scholars, researchers, program directors. And I, I didn't really know that walking into, the Purdue program, but what attracted me when I interviewed there were the students. So I, whenever I advise students with they're looking at doctoral programs is don't just look at the faculty, don't look just at location, uh, but look at the students and look at where the graduates go when, uh, when they complete. Talk about where your spirit of service starts from. Um, well, I think Purdue was sort of the ultimate socialization because uh, they, every year we had to put together a, um, a kind of self-reflective uh, portfolio, not huge, but, you know, um, you know, sort of identifying what activities, engagements, projects we were involved that were leading us to grow. Um, and those were in the areas of research uh, you know, service and scholarship. Did we go to the state conference? Did we go to the national conference? Did we, uh, you know, did we do extracurricular things? And these weren't necessarily graded things, but it provided a feedback mechanism. And I think it also gave, uh, embedded in me a kind of expectation that that's part of this walk and part of this professional path that I'm on, um, seeing my faculty serve as division leaders uh, in Indiana, um, you know, I think that was sort of the, I, I had a little peek of the, the role of advocacy when Therana Nelson uh, was on the legislative committee and got certification in Indiana while I was a student there. Well, that was sort of years beyond me. It wasn't lost on me um, either. So... Um, but I think it wasn't really until I graduated uh, and moved down to New Orleans that uh, I became involved. You know, I sort of committed myself. Hey, Tim, describe your kind of trajectory to leadership, both on the local level 
and the national level within the AAMFT. Some people, not everybody has aspirations of, you know, uh, central leadership role. Um, and I can't say that I did when I first joined the Louisiana uh, division. I started out as a uh, as the newsletter editor because I asked the president, what do they what do they need and how can I be helpful? I had been on the ground for about three months. Um, but between 1996 and uh, I think I took on a presidential role in the Louisiana division, like around 2001, um, and coming to leadership training, which AAMFT used to hold for division leaders, and I got to interact with the board. And I think, again, Serena Nelson was on the board. Uh, so I've always, I've been blessed with really great mentors, but I think I've also sought out models and examples of exemplary professional service. Um, so, um, but, you know, I think hanging around in those, uh, in those kind of networking circles of leadership, somebody saw something in me and asked me if I'd be interested. And I think many of the steps that I've taken have been out of a willingness to say yes, even though I didn't know what I had to bring I was willing to, to sort of find out. So I did my first. In fact, we were, uh, I threw my name in the hat for uh, a board of directors role back in 2005. That was the my first election cycle. Um, and, uh, you know, went to my first, uh, so my, my first term of service started in 2006. Um, Three-year stint of that, I was off for uh, about five months, and then there was a vacated board position, and Linda Schwally, who was the current president then, asked me if I would come back because they needed somebody uh, to be sort of seasoned enough to step right in, skip the orientation, and jump right in. I, uh, you know, I was tired. I was sort of enjoying my, uh, you know, first leg of retirement from board service, but I felt like they they called me. They need me. My wife said, "Well, you got to say yes." <laughs> so it's been helpful that she's been supportive of my service and really, I think, respected my commitment to that. Um, I, you know, it wasn't an easy uh, turn to uh, to to be back on the board as the president elect. I had. Uh, two previous terms, I threw my name in the hat, and I didn't make the slate. Um, and I was okay with that. I think one of the things I often say to people who are considering board service is, you have to do it because you recognize that throwing your name in is a service in itself. Um, and you really help the elections council by giving them a range of, uh, you know, good qualified people for them to consider. Because the elections council, which I served as a board appointment for, um, and two, ter- two, two rounds of that, you know, you'll look to sort of compose a constellation of people that bring a lot of different skills and talents and sort of dispositional qualities. Um, so speaking of leadership qualities, what does a Tim Dwyer bring to the table in that regard? Um, I think a ultimately a, uh, a willingness to learn, uh, and with that, that's fueled by a passion for the field 
Uh, I love MFT. Uh, I feel like it's bred in my bones. When students ask me, how did you get into this field? You know, I often say as the youngest of five in my family, I think I was born into it um, because that position put me in a place to sort of watch my family, you know, my older siblings leave, sometimes come back, watch the adjustment transitions in my own family. But I think my curiosity, I think, is a skill, my willingness to say yes when asked, um, my willingness to learn when I may not know, um, you know, at the get-go. Um, I think there's, I, I, this sounds kind of funny, I, I think I have a kind of essential humility that may not always come out because I'm willing to put myself out there, which takes a certain risk that doesn't always show up as humility, but I think that I, I feel like that's where it comes from. So I feel like I'm a servant leader. <laughs> you know, we've known each other for many years now, and I certainly echo your humility and your ability to be one of the people and a servant leader. And that is really what's called for in a job like this, being accessible to the membership. But if I'm listening to this for the first time, I'm just getting involved with AAMFT, or I don't really know what the board does, much less the president. Tell us, what does the AAMFT president do? But the ultimate job of the of the president is to be the spokesperson. There are two spokespeople for AMFT. One is the uh, CEO, and the other is the president. And there's, um, but behind that, is, the job is to uh, you know manage. The, uh, the, the, the process, uh, we have a governance leadership model. We have a skill-based governance uh, model. But my job is to uh, sort of manage the board's process, um, which that sounds uh, rather vague. Um, but we have Robert's Rules. Uh, you know, we meet four times a year. We have an agenda. There's a lot of work that goes into preparing for a board meeting. The president's role is to, in consultation with the CEO and the president-elect, the past president, if there is one that particular year, is to uh, put the agenda together. Um, you know, those are not things that are done, uh, you know, with uh, impulse uh, or with, you know, a kind of casual sense of preparation. There's a lot of deep thought that goes into those things. The president's job is to appoint, you know, members on the board or members in the association to serve on committees, on task forces, the ethics committee, uh, you know, the various uh, governance units. Um, that are not elected uh, positions. It's the board, the president's role to appoint uh, individuals to those particular things. When there is a, uh, it's and it's really to sort of uh, manage the board to make sure that it's focused on the future and the uh, we have a strategic plan and it's to make sure that the work and the focus and the effort of the board is in line with uh, what is already articulated in that strategic plan. Listening to you, Tim, your pathway to leadership was through state divisions. And now since AMFT has moved to more of a model of topical interest networks, uh, that traditional pathway has been replaced. If you're listening to this and you know inspired to kind of serve and get more involved in AAMFT, what do you think is the best way to go about doing that? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Eli. I I think, uh, you know, showing yourself, letting people know your interest and willingness. Right now with the, uh, with the network programs, um, we have the topical uh, interest programs, which there are eight now in its inaugural year. We It's funny because those are, we, we haven't done a real hard, uh, you know, sort of start or rollout of those things. And already people are signing up to those because they're tapping interest that they have. I think, you know, joining those, uh, you know, the, the, those didn't come out of nowhere either. There were uh, a handful of, of, of leaders uh, and people who were passionate around those topics that wanted to, um, you know, create something and wanted to contribute something. I think uh, an emerging leader who has interest in those uh, would do well to, you know, get to know some of the, the chair, the chair elect, the treasurer, the secretary, or whoever, uh, is involved in the, in the sort of managing and the leadership of those interest networks and, uh, and ask how you can contribute, ask how you can be helpful. There are a number of ways to do that, um, you know, uh, as a volunteer, uh, as, even, you know, as a, as a student, um, to, uh, you know, help spread the word, to help inform people, to help with recruitment and retention, to keep your eyes open for people that have that passion and have that spark and have that curiosity and have a learner-centered mind to want to sort of grow something. You know, the new AAMFT is all about member choice and member engagement, and we see that reflected in these topical interest networks we've been talking about. I'm curious, in addition to those, what are you the most excited about in the next two years during your term as AAMFT president? You know, this is the inaugural year, and, and I know that it's been a hard year because people are making the adjustment. Um, I want, I, I, I'm excited about kind of helping uh, members, whether they're in geographic areas that are are sort of still navigating the the transformation from a division structure to this component network structure. Um, I'm I'm excited about seeing those uh, you know kind of make the cultural shift in a lot of ways because it truly is a paradigm shift for the organization. Um, and 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 watching those flourish, I um, I know I'm on the component evaluation committee, which has looked at all of the proposals of uh, of the networks that have have an idea and want to bring it forth. The geographic networks, um, I think uh, there are there are some that were, you know, future focused and keen uh, and clear minded about what they wanted to accomplish and what they wanted to to do in terms of their own efforts, whether it be advocacy, whether it be networking, mentoring, um, you know, d- d- content, uh, consumer-oriented content for their particular division. It's all in service of, um, you know, uh, advancing the practice and the profession. Um, and so I, I'm excited about seeing seeing the further evolution of those networks and and members really getting a tangible sense of what the possibilities are of of those because it truly is a ground up um you know sort of opportunity for for member engagement um and the opportunity to you know pick and choose the things that you want to to and whether you're clicking and joining an interest network 
because you just want to observe and lurk and sort of see what's going on, or whether there's something that's really driving you to connect. I'm looking forward to new leaders emerging. The new leadership certificate program is another thing I'm incredibly excited about. I remember the days of the old leadership training, and you know there was a lot of tension kind of uh, in in the mix. I remember as a division leader feeling. Sort of the anxiety of my, you know, renewal of responsibility <laughs> to what it took to, to sort of be an effective leader in those things. And, and sometimes it was, it was stressful. Um, I see the new kind of leadership model. Um, I mean, there's a steep learning curve for a number of things, but there's also an amazing felt sense of support, I think, that they get from staff, that they get from other members, that they get from other networks. The leadership certificate program, though, uh, you know, it's what, three years, I think, or it might be entering its fourth year. You know, the leadership certificate is a great option for those young professionals that have graduated from their co-empty program, but still feel like they want more polishing in the professional aspects of being an emerging leader, of being a marriage and family therapist. Well, that's it. I think that they're eminently transferable into a variety of contexts and whether it's building, you know, your own sort of practice, uh, you know, uh, business in your own setting uh, or whether it's, you know, uh, functioning at a higher level in your own current context of community agency or whether you're really keen on, you know, investing those skills into the association. Um, and, and I think... Oftentimes, having those skills allows a person the flexibility to change, you know, courses and change paths as they grow and as they develop more skills and they see where the uh, applications can really be put to, put to use. You know, Tim, if I'm a young professional just getting by paying off my graduate school loans, working my job at a community agency, I might not have a lot of time or extra effort reserved for service. But it's such a foundational part of what we do as marriage and family therapists. Um, talk about why the spirit of service is so important, no matter, no matter where you are and what stage, whatever stage of your career you're at. I think, you know, that phrase that you sort of get what you give. Um, and I, I can tell you, I feel like I have received... Um, you know, 10 times what I have given. Um, and it just leads me to get, want to give more. Uh, that may sound kind of cliche, but I, I think, and I don't, and I'm not talking about sort of necessarily tangible things, but I think the network of relationships, it really is about relationships. So my service has brought me deeper and, and a richer and more diverse community of relationships that I've had. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, knowing, knowing people is a tremendous resource. <laughs> uh, and, and I, that's one of the things that sort of continues to feed my interest and my passion in this organization is because I think the people are extraordinary, um, in, in, in the variety of things that they, are committed to and focused on and and there's a great deal of diversity in this organization and i think that uh it excites me to accentuate that you know i'm so glad you talk about that the the idea of service and building relationships through service when i think of my best experiences with amft 
through the past two decades, it's the people I've served with on a local level and on a national level. And those relationships matter. When I come to conferences every year, like the annual conference or the leadership symposium, it's as much to follow up with people I really enjoy as it is to learn things. Um, so service, especially when you're with like-minded people, as you usually are, someone that's going to volunteer their time and skill at that level, it is, uh, it is great for relationship building. And in this profession, relationships matter, as you say. Also, if, again, if I'm a young professional and my dollars matter, so it's one thing about serving, it's another thing about belonging. Why is it so important to belong to an organization like the AAMFT? Um, because a profession is more than a license. And I know when, uh, when I was in Louisiana and I was, it was on my watch that we won licensure and we had an immediate, you know, initial drop in, uh, in, in the membership in the, in our, in our region, our division. And that was, that was sort of the, 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 the message that I was committed to delivering. And, uh, and I think that because AMFT is the only association that is advocating and advancing the profession and the practice of MFT, um, if you love what you do, then I, I frankly think it should be within our ethical code to give back and to, uh, to, to, to belong. Uh, to your professional association. I also think, I will just add too, um, that, uh, there, you know, back in our early days, we were a big tent, a rather exclusive tent, but a big tent and people came from a variety of pathways. Um, I look forward to a time when people can find their professional home in AMFT and they might be coming from a variety of professional pathways. And so. Coming full circle. Exactly, exactly. But in a more integrated and a more holistic and I think in a more, um, you know, coherent way um, where the, the that systemic, relational, contextual view is the thing that uh, it sort of gravitates us to one another. You know, part of being a servant leader and a man of the people, as I was saying earlier, is your availability. And one of the best things about you is that you are always willing to stop answer a question, correspond with membership in a way that sometimes people think a president doesn't have time for. So Tim is very accessible, as you can tell by his candor on the podcast today. And you should definitely stop by, drop him a line, say hello, and he will tell you about the benefits being part of AAMFT. I enjoy being stopped. I enjoy uh, engaging on the fly. I enjoy uh, meeting people who have a question. I enjoy uh, making uh, making a meaningful connection. So I encourage people to not see me as uh, unreachable, untouchable, or otherwise too powerful to say hey. <laughs> Once again, AAMFT President Tim Dwyer, thank you so much, my friend, for being with us here today on the podcast. Thanks, Eli. Thanks for doing this project. See so brings to a close another installment of the AAMFT podcast where we seek to relate 
educate and innovate one episode at a time. We did some relating there with our two current leaders. Thanks again to Steve Harris and Tim Dwyer. I learned a lot. A couple of notes after listening to that interview. I mentioned that all AMFT members, whether you be a clinical fellow, preclinical fellow, or student, get access through your membership to JAMFT. You can find that on the main page of the website at aamft.org. I'm also happy to announce uh, a new partnership. In addition to JMFT, you get access to the Journal of Family Therapy and the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Family Therapy. More great member benefits. Please check that out. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, anyone interested in developing their leadership skills, the Leadership Symposium, the Leadership Certificate through AMFT are great ways to do that. Also, getting involved in these new topical interest networks, and those are the pathways, as Tim talked about his pathway to leadership, that new leaders and potential future AMFT board members will emerge from. Have a great time doing this podcast, and we love hearing from you. Please send me an email, communications at aamft.org. Follow us on Twitter. It's at the AAMFT, and I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.